Hey everybody, you are about to listen to the podcast version of The Flat Circle, a True Detective After Show with me, Chris Ryan, and Jason Concepcion. You can watch The Flat Circle on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook on all the Ringer's channels. Let's get into the podcast now. What's up? My name is Chris Ryan. This I'm is, Jason Concepcion. That's who that is. This is The Flat Circle, a True Detective After Show. We're here to talk to you about episode five of True Detective season three, if you have ghosts, written by Nick Pizzolatto, directed Ooh. by Daniel Sackheim. Whew. What a weird fog of an episode, man. Really, uh, we're seeing Wayne's memories collapse. Yeah. And the three timeline Waynes being together in the same place. That must be pretty intense for Wayne. Uh, let's just get right into it. Every week we ask the simple questions. Who, what, when, where, and why. And we're going to start with what this week. Jason, let's go through like yeah. timeline by timeline. Let's frame this as what did we learn in each timeline. Yeah. In 1980... After the Woodard shootout, Will's backpack and Julie's shirt are discovered at the Woodward home. Case closed, right? right. We got our guy. And they're discovered by the mysterious... Harris James, yes. who's one of the uh, investigators. In 1990, at a task force meeting, we get another mention of a witness encounter with a mystery plainclothes cop, but there's no record in the field reports of said Cop. And this is weird because, like, this cop has shown up a couple of times, yep. as has Brown Sedan Man. Yep. So these are two major figures in this case that— Speaking to witnesses. Multiple people have said, like, oh, I had this interaction yep. with this person. I don't have a name. I don't have a description whatever. But they have not been identified, and we are, are past halfway through the season. Wayne and Roland drop in on Freddie Burns, now an adult shitheel twerp. <laughs> uh, and he says that on the day of the disappearance, after he stole Will's bike, Will said— I can't find my sister. I don't know where they went. They. They. So who was with Julie? From a young vagrant, Wayne and Roland discover that Julie is now potentially going by the name Mary July and that she couldn't keep track of what year it was and that she kept saying that she was a, quote, secret princess from the, quote, pink Rooms. And this scene, so where this kid is telling Wayne Roland about he saw the reward, mm -hmm. but he's really, he does seem to be coming in like to help them. That scene and the way he describes Julie is basically a, like a yes. recreation of the way Charlie Lang talked about the way Dora, Dora Lang, Lang was. How she talked about a yellow king. Right. And how she was crazy. She's a nun. And she's a nun married to a yellow That's king. Right. This idea of Julie living in a pink room as a secret princess, and obviously we're going to talk about this, but it brings back to mind her drawings earlier in the year. She had crowns drawn, a yellow crown drawn. Mm -hmm. While looking over the evidence from the 80 investigation, still in the 1990 timeline now, Wayne realizes that unidentified fingerprints, among potentially other evidence, are missing. And later he has an epiphany, while looking over the evidence that he does have, that Will's backpack and Julie's shirt, both found again at the Woodward scene, were planted. Tells Roland, Roland's in a bind because this is exactly the kind of evidence that the AG told them not to chase. And this is the first time where you can see Wayne pushing past. Right. Pushing past what he's allowed to be doing. And you get this sense of this is why he lost maybe mm -hmm. his standing in the department in the first place. And we're finally seeing Wayne catch the scent of a larger conspiracy. Right, the outlines, 1980 was a case. 1990 is the conspiracy. The outlines of the conspiracy are there. Julie we think, potentially, calls the tip line. She says, they're looking for me. I saw it on television. I saw him on television. The man on TV acting like my father. Make him leave me alone. Make him leave me alone. That's not my real name. I know what he did. The man on TV acting like my father. Where's my brother Will? Tell me what he did with him. We left him resting. No, you won't. You work for them. He took me, and I'm never coming back. 
wow, they play this tape for uh, Tom, and then they Wayne and Roland both give Tom a very charged look after this. Uh, what that means, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously, you know, when these cases happen, yeah. and if you read about, like, these crimes involving children, inevitably the first place they look is the home. Family. And you remember in episode one, they're talking about, do you think he's lying? Not about this. Right. That's what they say about Tom when Tom's like, I, they were supposed to come back by sundown. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they are. He seems a, legitimately distraught in the first episode. Yeah. Enough so that I think as viewers and also as cops, they were like, okay, Tom didn't do this. He might have gotten, you know, the wool pull over his eyes, right. but Tom didn't do this. We're going to talk a little bit more about that hotline call in a second, though. 2015. Eliza, now doing more interviews with Wayne, asks him about Harris James. Did you ever talk to him? Did you ever meet him? An officer who processed the Woodward scene. Wayne is like, I don't know who that is. Who is that? And Eliza tells him, there's actually a note in the field reports that you spoke to him. And it's clear that Harris, at this point, it's clear to us anyway, that Harris was the dead man in the suit in Wayne's hallucination. Right, with with all the NVA soldiers. Right. Wayne, in a truly ridiculous turn, reads Amelia's book for what he says is the first time. Yeah. And he realizes from this, after reading Amelia's recounting of the, of the incident where she went to uh, Lucy's home to deliver the stuff from school, that Lucy wrote the children should laugh letter. Right. During this, Wayne's recollections begin to collapse on themselves as we as we discussed he's he's seeing himself from every single timeline yeah they're sitting in bed he sees himself in 1980 in the window he also sees a door open yeah. which is basically his future ghost in 2015 and while he's sitting there Amelia's reading a Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book which is itself a story about a child who's abandoned and is raised by the wild you know so that has some parallels to Julie's story with Henry's help, Wayne tracks down Roland, who's uh, living up in the hills with his uh, various stray dogs. Wayne tells Roland that back in 1990, he had a visit from Hoyt, quote, the day after it happened. It, we don't know what it is yet. Hoyt apparently asked Wayne to let it go, and he knew, quote, what they had done. He also mentions that Hoyt was in the dark himself, what that means is obviously unclear at this, at this point. He also mentions that people have been asking questions about Dan O'Brien and Harris James. He mentions that uh, Dan's body was found in a drain quarry. This makes Roland pretty anxious, of but course. But it does not seem surprised by that. No, but both. <laughs> He's like, that's where we left him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and Roland is obviously anxious at the mention of these two people, but Roland pointedly doesn't say the name yeah. that he's concerned about. Is he worried that, that Wayne's wearing a wire? What is he worried about? Why does he phrase Lucy and Dan's relationship as a connection rather than state that they were a family? It's very interesting. And towards the end of that, it really seems like Roland is going to join forces with Wayne and they're going to do some senile old man shit, yeah. join the fantasy camp, and start investigating this case again. True detective colon cocoon. Right. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about who here by pulling at these threads a little bit because I think that this is another episode that we came out with a lot of follow-up questions. Yes. Right? This is an episode, the theme of this episode is ambiguity. That ambiguity could stem from the fact that our main character is going through the onset of Alzheimer's. Yep. And you're starting to really come into a case where, is this a reliable narrator? This is kind of where we were around in season one. Remember, there was a lot of questions about, like, 
Is Marty Hart is right. involved? Is Marty Hart's father involved? You know, is Rust somehow involved? Because the two cops who were interrogating Rust yeah. seem to suspect him and be to be involved in the Dora Lang murders and a, lo- a lot of the murders that were happening in Louisiana at the time. So we're starting to get this like fog around a lot of it, and it just makes us have more questions. Let's start with Julie's phone call. Are we sure it's Julie? We don't know. She never identifies herself as Julie. There doesn't seem to be any. We don't have a voice record of what Julie would sound like mm-hmm. as a teenager. In 1990, so there's that. She says that it was the man on TV. Well, there were which, three men on yeah, TV. Yeah, which, which man? There was her father, who we should stress to mention, Tom's parents seem to think that he might not be the father of Julie. And she says, the man acting like my father. The man acting like my father. All three people were at, had like a certain paternal feel to the way they were mm-hmm. talking. Those people were Tom, they were Alan Jones, the former state prosecutor who was now working for Brett Warden's children, probably to overturn the conviction of the murder of Will, even it posthumously. Yeah. And there were Jeff Kent, who was a former state's attorney, was now the Arkansas attorney general. And he was claiming that Julie's reappearance does, has it's no a, effect. No bearing on it. On, on Woodard's right. conviction, right? So those, those are the three people. The other question I had coming out of that phone call is, is it possible that Tom Purcell did do something? Is it possible that he was dismissed too early on and that there's something, there's another like foot to drop in that part of the case because we have not seen or yeah. heard from Tom in the 2015 timeline. Now, 2015, yeah, where is he? He what's would be pretty on? old. He lived pretty hard. But we don't know what's going on with him or what happens to him once he finds out that Julie's still alive yeah. and that she seems to have implicated him in her disappearance. And again, it clearly seems like from comments Wayne makes to Roland in the 2015 timeline that the 1990 case has to blow up somehow. Yes. Something yeah. big is going to happen there. Something that, ha- that involves a day after. Yeah. couple more things I just wanted to hit. This runaway kid seems nice enough or <laughs> seems like he's like trying to do the right thing. Uh, Good kid. When he says that she lost her brother and was looking for her brother, does that somehow imply, as the hotline call does as well, that Julie doesn't know that Will's dead? Yeah. Or that she somehow thinks that Will is it was sleeping when, like, when he's obviously dead? Because that would speak to the extremity of her isolation and a certain amount of stress on her mental state. And, and uh, she says, potentially, Julie in the call says, we left him resting which would lead you to believe that she saw him yeah. dead. Yeah. She saw his body. She was like, she saw him posed with prayer hands like, on, the, on that overhang, yeah. the lang that we were talking about yeah. in the first thing, the first episode. Briefly, also, just about that runaway kid, I just wanted to throw out there that they say that you left Mina, you know, a while back. Mina is this town in Arkansas, which anybody who saw the movie American Made or has mm-hmm. read a little bit about the cocaine trade in the 1980s and 90s knows that Mina was actually like, a hub for bringing drugs into the country. It has a very small airport. I don't think that that has anything to do with True Detective, but for the conspiracy theorists out there, I just thought I'd throw them out there. Harris James, I just want to ask, is he a villain or a victim? We don't know. Is he a patsy? Because did he plant that evidence or did he find it and get drawn into this case? Let's, I mean, let's really talk about that for just a split second. Yeah. I mean, I tend to believe Wayne because, you know, it's a true detective and it wouldn't be much of a story if there wasn't some planted evidence. But on the other hand, if you look at it, step back from it, it's pretty thin. Yeah. I mean, no burns on the book bag, so what? It was under a crawl space right. with wood between it and the explosion. Is that really that big a deal? Uh, Wayne is pretty convinced. And then if it was planted, do we know that Harris planted? I and mean, we're going to find this out pretty right. soon. Uh, the other person I wanted to bring up again is Dan O'Brien, who keeps coming up, even though we haven't seen him in a few episodes. 
Do not forget about the hole in the wall. Yeah, that's a big that's a big one. The Someone hole, did that. The hole in the closet, which I you know theoretically would go both ways, but you know, Dan's been implicated in that because he was living in that in the house at the yeah. time and staying in that room. Am I right? Yep. And you know, did Dan and Lucy were they in on that surveillance together? Did Dan facilitate that surveillance for other people that we don't know yeah. about yet? This goes back to Lucy being like, I have this guilty conscience. I have this sin I have to right. confess that Amelia tries to get out of her. Is it being with Dan? Yeah. Is it having a child with him? Yeah. Or is it allowing her children to be compromised somehow? Okay? So I just also want to mention, because she she kind of comes in and out of this episode. Amelia, I still don't understand how Wayne doesn't read her book. And whether or not maybe he did read the book but forgets. I think that that's more the case. He certainly says, like in a previous episode, that... He cracked it, and every time he comes across his name, he stops. Or a mention of his name, he stops reading it. But still, to not read the book in 20 years is a level of petty that I can't even fathom. <laughs> uh, I don't think like, I don't think my wife listens to every episode of The Watch. But like, if The Watch was about like her, she probably would. Um, I, I think it's I think it's also fair to, to assume that he forgot a good portion of it. But it certainly seems like something like a line-for-line line mention of something that Lucy said that is verbatim from the ransom note or the don't look note, that's something he would have remembered yes. through the fog. Yes. So, I, and you know, the last person we're going to mention is Hoyt, who I think we're getting the, the sort of ground Still on safari. for Hoyt to come back into this show yeah. in some capacity. They obviously discussed him at Roland's house uh, in 2015. Something, there's some interaction between... Wayne and Hoyt mm-hmm. in 1990 that we're yet to see. So those are all the questions we have about who. We want to talk to you a little bit about context and give you guys a little bit of uh, some of the true crime parallels oh, that yeah. we're seeing in this episode. What were some of the ones that you saw initially? I keep thinking about the Oakland uh, County child murders. Right. So a series of kidnappings in Michigan from uh, February 1976 to 1977. Four children abducted and murdered. Their bodies left in various locations. They were held for anywhere between 4 and 19 days before they were killed. Some of them were bathed and clothed in new clothes. One of them, after the boy's mother went on TV and said, please bring him home, his, I want to get him his favorite meal of uh, fried chicken, was fed fried chicken before he was killed. <laughs> and the, the case takes a really interesting turn where a polygraph um, technician in 2006, was like at a convention. He was mentioning that he got into crime because of this case. And the person he's talking to was like, actually, you know, I know about that case. Um, the local police had someone confess and they suppressed it. And then that got back to one of the victim's families who filed a Freedom of Information Act and learned that there is this suspect named Christopher Bush, the youngest of four sons of uh, uh, a high-ranking General Motors executive who had numerous scrapes with the law involving young boys, was found to have taken pictures of young boys. These pictures were found uh, in possession of a another rich guy who fled the state after he was charged with child pornography, um, possession of child pornography and creation of child pornography, which he made on his island, his private island that he had in one of the Great Lakes, Fox Island. This guy fled, and then Christopher Bush later committed suicide, but failed the polygraph test when it pertained to this case. And then all that of that— suppressed. And that was all just totally suppressed. If not for this Freedom of Information Act, 
none of this would have ever come to light. And that the case is still officially unsolved. And, uh, you know, another case that we've talked about earlier in the season is the Johnny Gosh case that has that documentary that I think you mm-hmm. can watch, uh, What Happened to Johnny. Is that right? Yep. And the thing that, I, that made me think about this case for this episode was the reappearance. And, yeah. you know, Johnny is, uh, Gosh was a child who was abducted, I think, in the early 80s in Iowa. And um, it essentially, like, you know, leveled uh, this entirely entire community in a lot of yeah. ways. His mother became obsessed with the case, as as is as understandable, and made a lot of suggestions about a far-reaching conspiracy that Johnny was caught up in that involved pedophilia and child abuse and 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 rich guys, much yeah. like the Oakland County murders. And she claimed that Johnny came back to her like 15 years after the fact and spent a couple of hours with her in the middle of the night with another guy saying that he had been abducted and that he was on the run and that there was like this huge conspiracy surrounding his abduction. She also implicated uh, or suggested that her husband was in on the child abduction, which kind of gets back to where we are with True Detective, where you've got a family being torn apart. And a lot of allegations starting to fly and a lot of trust being eroded and a lot of uh, paranoia and anxiety starting to seep into all the major players here, including the detectives themselves. Yeah. And that's not unlike what happened in season one. And we're going to talk a little bit about the connections here because I think… I think with the release of the trailer, oh, the trailer uh, that is for the rest of this season three of True Detective, where we have a lot to talk about what's coming. And I also wanted to talk a little bit, and you want to talk a little bit about how this could be connected. So we know it's connected for sure. For sure now we know it's connected. So after last episode, HBO aired the coming up this season on True Detective. It's very important the way they phrase that. It's not next episode on True Detective. It's this season on True Detective. So there were a number of scenes in that uh, that we didn't see this episode. That's right. And I'm just going to go through them. So... We see Wayne walking towards this car and the back door here beginning to open. We can assume that this is Hoyt in his meeting with Wayne in 1990, right? Uh, a lot of mysterious cars in this season. A lot of mysterious cars. Brown sedan, the car idling outside of Wayne's house in 2015, and this in this car right here. Here is Roland. Okay, so another, some more of the scenes that we see in very quick snippets are uh, what we assume to be Roland and Wayne's car pulling over another car. And then... We see Roland beating up who I assume is Harris James in the same barn that they used previously to uh, to beat for up LaGrange. for Lagrange. Yeah, here they are bringing Lagrange to that. I would note that if you look at the background of Roland's office in 1990 when he's being interviewed, that is an abandoned barn. Which, if it's not the same exact barn. It's how many the, barns you got? How many barns you got? I mean, <laughs> it's Arkansas, but still, like <laughs> Roland, it's like is Roland in the multi barn fan like like salary bracket? I, I mean, that's just like a uh, an interesting little uh, uh, <laughs> interesting little nugget from Roland. So Roland beating up what we assume to be Harris James. Perhaps this is what leads to his death. Then we see uh, Wayne in front of a fire. We assume burning his clothes. Looking after- incredibly apocalypse now. Yeah. Probably burning evidence after they kill either Dan or Harris or maybe somebody else. Here is Amelia walking up to him after this is happening, asking what he did. Uh, killed a guy, probably. <laughs> uh, is this what leads to their separation? That's a marriage I, I would, yeah, I just committed <laughs> yeah. a murder. Um, this is absolutely tantalizing. Here is Amelia with a young woman 
I don't think it's Julie. Because she's too young. Too young. But could this be, like, we assume that the Ozark charity, the children's charity run by Hoyt, has probably a number of halfway houses, uh, residences where they house uh, children in need. This looks like it could be one of those with the twin beds mm-hmm. and the kind of sparse decor, but very nice. Amelia, I think we can assume, is going to investigate the case and is talking to kids that are housed in these charities' residence. Have you ever seen Julie? Do right. you know anything about what's happening? What's it like here? There's a crucial line in that where I mean, Amelia talks in this trailer about the, basically the devastation wrought yeah. by something or someone on this community, as does Roland, who says this entire town got killed and, and Wayne is like, it got murdered. Now, this, it's like two frames this happens in. Here is Tom beating up who I assume to be Dan. You can kind of see his face in the first part of the frame, even though it's, it happens extremely fast. But uh, how does Dan come back into Tom's life? Does right. Tom hunt down Dan? Or do they bring Dan to Tom to get like a kind of vengeance that you can't get through mm-hmm. courts? Like, and where is this? This appears to be a motel? Right. Or another barn, you know? Yeah. Here, just, another, there's so many barns yeah. out there. Uh, <laughs> I got my murder barn. I got my keep him quiet barn. <laughs> This one is uh, fascinating. So this one legit freaked me out. Yeah. So this is Amelia handing. Uh, I think Amelia, right? I that's that's a good guess. Or is it? It could or be is Eliza. It Eliza's. Yeah. So it's either Eliza or Amelia handing a photograph to Wayne, and the photograph is of Will and Julie, possibly from the day of the disappearance. Who took this photo from a weird angle behind them? Yeah. And then what is this stuff going on? Like, there's this. Very large shadow that appears to be a statue of a... And proportionally, those shadows are much larger than the car in the background. So... What is happening? I I mean, like, candidly, like, when I look at it, I'm thinking, like, Wicker Man type things. Yeah, it's for real. This seems to be some sort of mythological figure. But, hey, like, like, like that has not really been the case in True Detective. The, The supernatural has a very sadly natural explanation. But that doesn't mean that we can't go into new places. Although... We can continue with this. So, here is what we assume to be the pink castle that the Julie pink room, drew. Yeah. The pink room, the yeah. pink castles that Julie drew from your illustrations. The illustrations that uh, Roland and Wayne picked up when they searched, researched the Purcell home. Here are, I guess, chauffeurs waiting for their like uh, freak clients to come out of here. And then, in what is like really the most. This is like every air air horn you can sound. Every right air now. horn. Here is Eliza with her MacBook open to a page uh, recounting Rust and Marty's capture of the serial killer, the Yellow King from the 2012 in this timeline, the right. 2012 case when after 17 years they got back together, reopened the investigation, talked to some ex-cops and hunted down the serial killer in the bayous of Louisiana. So now we have definitive proof that this season of True Detective and yeah. the first season of True Detective are happening in the same shared world, right? Let's not talk about spinoffs. Let's not talk about whether or not characters are going to make cameos necessarily because right. we don't know. That would be highly unlikely, I yeah. think. But stranger things have happened. But what we do know is that Nick Pizzolatto is teasing out the idea that a conspiracy unites these two seasons, yeah. you know, and, you know, if you're incredibly, incredibly gifted, you might be able to pull in season two, but you were more gifted than either right. of us. Um, maybe that's who sold the barns and stuff? Right. Like, yeah, real that's estate? Right. It's maybe, a real estate maybe conspiracy? Maybe it's Chad Velcoro's <laughs> barn sales. I don't know. 
But one thing I wanted to talk about from season one is an idea that had been floating around that kind of got knocked down once season one ended. And this is, uh, it's Five Horsemen Theory. Right? Oh! So this was thrown around a lot. It was on Reddit. People were talking about it. There's some really good pieces about it. But it's basically an idea that there is not any one Yellow King, but rather uh, a cabal, basically, yeah. of what Reggie Ledoux refers to as rich men uh, in one of their stunning arguments with uh, Reggie Ledoux before his un- untimely demise. And by the way, speaking of Reggie Ledoux, I'm wearing Marty's t-shirt that he wears when he X's out Reggie that day out in the fields. So Reggie suggested that there was a cabal, basically. Yeah. That Five Horsemen theory was there might be multiple people involved in this conspiracy, this kidnapping, ritual abuse, murder uh, ring that was happening around the time. We've already talked about the geographic proximity between the Fayetteville area and the area in Louisiana where season one takes place. It's not uncoverable ground. We're not yeah. talking about LA and New York. And there is so many simil- there are so many similarities between the two cases, especially now you've got two young, disturbed women talking about uh, colors, yeah. talking about uh, being married to a king. Weird religious imagery and yeah. everything they say. We already had this, this spiral that we talked yeah, about seemingly before. confused. And one of the things that sort of united this Five Horsemen theory in season one was the fact that Russ Cole, when he was being interrogated, carved out five uh, figures from his Lone Star cans. Now, he was drinking a six-pack, so that's not the craziest thing in the world. But each of those figures had the Lone Star crown like adorning it, so that that idea that there was basically five yellow kings, let's just say it, right? Some people thought it was Marty's father-in-law was involved in this, that Billy the Tuttle was involved in this, obviously. And of course, you know, you had the image in season one that they found, that Marty and Russ found in uh, Dora Lang's mother's house, I think yeah. it was, of the image of Dora surrounded by five horsemen. It, I've, and why did they have that picture, right? Yeah. If you've got that picture, you've got this picture of Will and Julie, is there something about the ritual of this kidnapping situation that there has to be documentation yeah. of it? So, who knows? I think that this draws, this ties in really closely with Hoyt. I agree. I think that there's going to be some sort of connection between this rich, and this is the paranoia that was around yeah. at the time, that these rich, powerful men were basically entertaining themselves with the lives and deaths of children. I think we're going to find also that with, as you note, uh, with Julie's seemingly um, you know, loopy behavior, not knowing what year it was, etc. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to find that the MO is a lot is the same. In season one, you know, they found meth and LSD in right. in the bodies of the victims. Right. I think we're going to find that Julie is very likely drugged up yeah. for a lot of the stuff that was happening. Yeah, and you know, I think that one of the things that's been interesting, especially you know, in this trailer, they've got this this whole thing with this like they show these shots of of the town that in in True Detective season three, and it just looks like the plague has run through yeah. it, you know? And this idea that Wayne talks about in his office where he's like, I feel like I made everybody sick with this case. Like, he's talking about Becca, he's talking mm-hmm. about Amelia. We still don't really know what happened with Becca. Still don't really know what happened with Amelia. I, I think we're going to find out that much in the same way that in the 80s and 90s, people were basically looking for answers for life's unanswerable questions. Right. Like, why did this happen to me? And they would come up with these very far-reaching hard to keep together stories to, to make themselves maybe not feel better, but to explain things to themselves. But, you know, this is a TV show and, and Nick Pizzolatto is writing a, a story. And so it's it's a prerogative to kind of pull all this stuff together. Yeah. And I think 
I think we're right on the precipice of that happening. We, we have to be, right? I mean, with three episodes left, yeah. we've got to go heavy, heavy, heavy conspiracy. Right. I mean, you're seeing, like, in season one, Marty's daughter yeah. is, like, got these five toys around the female, the female doll. The dolls come back up again in season three with the way they're kind of disfigured, but we've had, like, conversations about maybe they're not disfigured. Yeah. Audrey, the, the Marty's daughter, also throws a crown up in the tree mm-hmm. so that her sister can't get the crown. There's like all this crown imagery. Crown like imagery. this is happening. Yeah. This is definitely not only on the same timeline, but connected. And I think that we're in for like a bunch of really fascinating episodes to come. Another thing to keep an eye on, real quick, is yeah. this neighbor, the neighbor Margaret, who is seen in the very first montage when the kids are riding off, she waves at them. I think that montage is gonna, we're gonna discover that there's a lot of hidden uh, secrets in there. And post the disappearance and murder, she's there all the time. She's always right next to Lucy, right in her ear, making sure either to comfort her or perhaps to make sure that she doesn't say anything, like out of pocket, like here she is here, seemingly being like, let's keep it quiet, and just always, always, always around, always right next to There's not a lot of waste in this season. If you're seeing somebody on camera, there's a reason for it. Yeah. I still want to know who called in the tip about the, the about Julie being surrounded by snakes one. in Huntsville. Is that Give Margaret? Me. Is that Mrs. Hoyt? We don't know. Like this is this is the stuff that we're thinking about right now. So we've got a little bit of runway to play with. Let's see if yeah. we can land the plane. For Jason Concepcion, I'm Chris Ryan. This has been the Flat Circle, a true detective after show. <laughs>